Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. This week uh, we'll be talking about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which is from chapter 13 of Matthew. You know, chapter 13 is dominated by Jesus' stories about uh, a sower came to sow seed. Last week, remember, he sowed seed and some fell on the path, some fell in weeds. You remember the story well. Well, he stays on the theme of agriculture and growing. You know, one of the interesting things about the Gospel of Matthew is this paradox between the judgment that's coming at the end of time, but also how the kingdom of God grows slowly, uh, out of sight. And amidst it is all the struggles that Jesus talks about in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And how do you see that? How do you know that? Well, remember the gospel starts out with the birth of Jesus. Then John the Baptist comes and he's castigating the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Famously, he says, you brood of vipers, who told you to escape the coming wrath? Because uh, John uh, directly attacked leadership in Israel, which of course led to his death. But he talked about uh, the one coming after whom who would baptize in water and the Holy Spirit. And then he, John the Baptist, has in chapter 3 of Matthew uh, another agricultural image. He says that the Messiah that's coming has his winnowing fan in his hand, which means he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. And remember, the chaff will be put into unquenchable fire. At the end of the gospel in the Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus is going to come back to that uh, story of final judgment. But here in the fat middle part of Matthew's gospel, he talks about the kingdom of God growing quietly and out of sight. And why it is that the people of Israel, that's you and me, really have to prepare ourselves to receive the seed and also to understand that in our own life, in the life of the church, in the life of the community, that the weed and the weeds, that is evil, are going to grow up side by side. This is just going to be the story of the church and the gospel. But let's take some moment, a moment and we'll talk about the readings for this Sunday in the second part of Oral Valley Catholic. And then I'd like to recommend some summer reading, uh, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, written in 1850 a great novel that takes as its subject at one very minor level adultery, but is very much about public sin and private guilt. And to think about that in terms of our own spiritual life, I think is very helpful. We should listen to Nathaniel Hawthorne. His daughter might be canonized. She became a Catholic and formed a group of sisters that work with uh, cancer patients, uh, incurable cancer. And I know Rose Hawthorne, that's Nathaniel's daughter, is up for canonization. So we'll, re we'll come back to the Scarlet Letter at the end of this podcast, but let's take a little time and try to understand chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. Let's go there now. So Matthew's Gospel is is around these two poles of a kingdom that comes quietly, undercover, grows silently, but also uh, final judgment of the Messiah with the winnowing fan in his hand, that there is accountability. 
um, God seems to cut us so much slack, but um, it's all the slack of the hangman's cord, according to John the Baptist. Uh, first one or two feet of the drop, no big deal. It's that third foot that get that third foot that gets you with a sudden stop. Um, so why are there so many perils about growing in chapter 13 and elsewhere in the gospel? Why all the agricultural symbolism? Because remember, Jesus was a tecton, that is like a handyman. We think of him as a carpenter, but his skill set was bigger than just carpentry. He could probably do almost anything. So in chapter 13, do you remember last week, as I said, it was about the sower sowing seed. Um, the Gospels contain not only the parables about the sower and the seed, but also the one from this week, which is about um, the uh, weeds growing up amongst the wheat. And so in the story, when you listen to it at Mass, is uh, at uh, a, a farmer sows good seed in a field, and uh, while he's asleep, enemies come and sow weeds in there, so they would try to choke out the, the good of the, of the crop. And it really picks up on some of the elements of that parable from last week about the rocky soil, thistles and thorns, birds on the pathway, all these things that threaten the seed. Um, but the key part is when uh, the master's workmen come to him and say, let's go out there and let us pull up the weeds uh, and give the chance for a wheat to grow. And uh, the master says, no, we'll wait at the end, and that's when we'll do the separation. So really, it's a parable about judgment. And also, what about the mystery of iniquitatum, mysterium iniquitatum, John Paul II used to say, the mystery of evil in the world. You know, we talk about the power of evil or the problem of evil. How could a God who is all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing tolerate evil in the world? Well, if you're looking for a philosophical, rational answer to it, you know, you just can't come up with one that satisfies everybody. The only real answer is in the gospel. And that is, uh, is that life is short and we're accountable for what we do with our lives. And so after Jesus talks about the sower of the seed and talks about the weed and the wheat, um, then he says that the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed that grows slowly, but uh, grows into this massive tree. Or the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, uh, you know, yeast put into a, grow, into a, 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 a loaf of, a, of a dough for bread. And so both images are that the kingdom of God grows slowly, but the kingdom of God um, grows into a huge tree, say from basically 11 faithful disciples that Jesus had uh, to a church that's now a billion or two million people around the world of uh, varying degrees of fidelity to, the, to their master. Um, or the leaven in the loaf, and if you just think again about not just the problem of evil, but why Christianity is so fundamental to understanding what evil is. Does anybody think that um, you would think of Vladimir Putin and his aggression against Ukraine as evil? Nobody seemed to raise the objection to the Romans uh, burning everything down. I remember one famous uh, Latin author said, the Romans create a desert and call it peace. 
Um, under, but they're starting to see what the problem of uh, pervasive evil in the world. And so all of these stories are something about the measured uh, effect of the gospel transforming the world. Uh, the ancient world, outside of Judaism, uh, saw no problem with uh, uh, having sex with children, saw no problem uh, with aborting children, infanticide, in fact, after birth, uh, an abandonment of the old. These were things done in the, old, uh, in the ancient world of Jesus' time. Uh, but it's the Christians and the Jews that complained about it, especially the Christians as they became more prominent because they recognized that it was very offensive to God um, that you would treat human life like that. And so uh, in the uh, early Christian literature, they referred to pederasty, which we think of as a crime, but literally means uh, in, in, uh, in Latin, it means... Uh, the love of children, or I guess it's Greek, um, pederasty, astero, astero, I think it is, uh, means to love, uh, like ped is the root of child, so uh, they saw it as a duty to love children and educate them while you're having sex with them. Uh, we don't see it like that anymore. In the 70s, there was a group in the United States, um, a man-boy uh, love society, I think it was called, and they were actually starting to... Uh, to advocate uh, for changing child abuse laws. I think that the clergy sex crisis that we had made it untenable. You know where you saw it is when Hollywood actors wanted to have the arrest warrant for uh, Roman Polanski, who uh, drugged a 16-year-old girl and abused her and then fled the country. Um, they liked to have that uh, warrant quashed, but the government refused to do it. How could you prosecute of Catholic priests or sue Catholic priests for events that happened so far in the past but give Roman Polanski a pass. And so it could be that Christ is just using our own misdeeds, the, the sins of our priests, um, to, as maybe a bulwark in our society uh, against this uh, liberalization of uh, sexual activity, which is uh, you like to think that there's some high watermark and we'll get back to a sexual sobriety but at the heart of all of that is the ability of sin in American culture to kill our consciences about evil. And so it's allowing weeds to grow up amongst the wheat. So what should we do? You know, the Dobbs decision last summer returned the issue of abortion back to the states, where really, if we're going to do anything to save national politics, Resolving it state by state is probably the most practical political solution that we have. But, you know, in terms of the weed and the wheats and, and being a, uh, attuned to that, think about the Christian witness in America um, about, um, about uh, the presence of evil. Slavery was in our country for how many centuries before it led to an American Civil War. And if you think of it at the heart of, uh, we think of it as the sin of racism, but really it's the sin where you don't recognize the humanity of another. When it's directed, of course, African-Americans, we call it racism, but it is just a subspecies of a much larger understanding of sin that's been amongst us uh, forever, going back to 
pederasty in the Latin and the Greek worlds. You know, uh, it continued on in our country, uh, slavery under the guise of Jim Crow laws where you could be arrested for loitering if you're a black man uh, and assigned to a chain gang in the South. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is a movie about that, which I really enjoyed by the Coen brothers. But there are other movies that, that explore uh, that reality where these men were put out to do basically slave labor, uh, sometimes for just insubstantial crimes. Uh, cool Hand Luke was another one that talked about it, though it had uh, much more of a mixed races in there. But uh, seeing that as it is, um, is about one of these fundamental uh, sins of weeds growing up amongst the goodness that's in America. And just one more example of it is abortion, where like not recognizing the humanity of uh, African slaves, not recognizing or giving full credit to the humanity of the indigenous people, uh, and now it's human beings uh, in the womb. Uh, it's really the same sin. And so to see it as some fundamental lacuna or blind spot uh, in human life that's particularly virulent in America. You know, another example of the problem of, uh, of uh, the sin and tolerating sin is America tolerated racism. America now at some level tolerates abortion. It used to tolerate abuse of the native people, but not so much anymore. Um, but you know, another example of trying to uh, get rid of uh, sinfulness in public life uh, that was very divisive in our country uh, was prohibition. You know, it was the Methodists and the Baptists who understood, and rightly, that uh, public drunkenness was a great health hazard in America. Uh, it's drug abuse now and public uh, drunkenness. And so the problems continued to grow. But it's the very same problem that the early suffragettes in the 19th century tried to take on. And then, like we do in America, whether it's racism or alcohol or abortion, uh, or other moral issues, birth control, Griswold versus Connecticut's another one, um, where politicians seize on to moral issues because those social issues, as you and I know, both motivate people to get out to the polls. Well, it motivated the Methodists and the Baptists, so they got those constitutional amendments passed prohibiting the apparently the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages with some subsections about, you know, altar wine that Jews and Catholics used. But, um, you know, people would obviously make it in their homes when my parents were children uh, and then speakeasies. To, uh, it didn't stop public drunkenness. And when you create laws that you cannot enforce, you just can't hire enough cops to enforce them. You can't get people to buy into them. What you create is a nation of scoff laws. And a scoff law is someone who just decides um, that that law is not going to apply to them because it's a stupid law. And people do that. They did it with drugs. They did it with alcohol. Um, and so how do you deal with those problems? Because this is the problem of the weed in the weeds. Uh, the weeds in the wheat. The terries in the wheat. Terry is another word for wheat. Um, and so uh, one of the most profound meditations on the issue uh, was from Nat Nathaniel Hawthorne, the, the Scarlet Letter, in 1850. 
And since, gosh, I read it in high school and I thought it was a novel about adultery, I read it again just recently, thought, wow, that is such a smart novel about the nature of good and evil growing up in a community. In the case of The Scarlet Letter, it's the Plymouth Colony. So I'd like to talk a little bit, because I just think it's interesting, even if you don't end up reading the book, which is a great read, um, to think about probably the great American novel, The Scarlet Letter, and why it speaks to this conflicted soul in America that wants so much to have public morality, uh, and the problem of what happens when you try to stamp out the weeds, because The Scarlet Letter is very much about the gospel today, about the weed and the wheat growing up side by side in the field. So let's turn to The Scarlet Letter now, and I hope you enjoy it, because I think it's a wonderful book. Have you ever watched a movie where there was no drama, nothing bad ever happened, it was just one happy event after another? I can't, I can think of happy movies, but it's always, it seems to me, because the hero is able to overcome the challenges that faces him and the one he loves, maybe his community. But there's always a struggle. Tragic endings usually have the, uh, the hero being destroyed. And so for the Greeks, when they did a uh, tragedy like the Oresteia about uh, Oedipus, the king, it's uh, the tragic flaw in Oedipus, which is he didn't really understand who his parents were, uh, and uh, it led him to uh, basically marry his mom, have children with her, and then, you know, the inevitable end when Oedipus is destroyed. So for the Greeks, there's this tragic flaw in the human person that destroys them. Friedrich Nietzsche had a different view of tragedy, apparently. His view of tragedy is where he takes someone who is a powerful man, a powerful woman, but they're facing odds where they just can't win. They'll fight to the end because this is what it means to be a human being, but inevitably they're just gonna go down. Uh, you know, a, maybe a good example of that, if you remember the Godfather trilogy, you know, where Michael Corleone wants to get out of the family business, but as he famously says, they keep grabbing me and pulling me back in. And you know, at the end, there he is after this whole life, his marriage is destroyed, he's killed his brother, his friendships are destroyed. Uh, the life that he wanted when he was an idealistic serviceman is anything that he's experienced. Maybe that's an example of a Nietzschean tragedy, uh, born into a world where you're just destroyed. But you know, the Christian tale is a little bit different. Willa Cather, and this is, uh, I, I like reading um, classic novels. The Scarlet Letter is the one I want to talk about. But one of the things that makes it so great is uh, there is a series called the Ignatius Critical Editions, and there are other ways to do this. But uh, Joseph Pierce, Ignatius Critical Editions, takes some great works of literature, and then they gather some wonderful essays explaining different aspects of the book that, for you and me, we might not pick it up. I think we could read the Scarlet Letter and we could understand that at the end, Hester Prine, who wears the Scarlet A for adultery on her bosom, uh, is a noble figure at the end. 
Pastor Dimsdale, who is the father of the ch of the of her child, but remains hidden until the very end when he acknowledges his paternity of the little girl Pearl, uh, is kind of a tragic figure, but finds his redemption through his public confession of his guilt and dies in Hester's arms, much loved by her. But uh, Hester's husband, who makes the whole thing about adultery, Roger Chillingsworth, is a very satanic figure because. Unlike uh, love that Hester and uh, Dimsdale have for each other, Chillingsworth doesn't love anybody. And he's, uh, he is just about outing whatever evil is, because to out it is to destroy Hester and to destroy Dimsdale. Uh, really not motivated by justice, mercy, or charity, just by the desire to destroy and show uh, how deeply flawed they are. That's really the... Uh, the story in a nutshell. Um, you know, Willa Cather, according to Regis Martin, who wrote a wonderful little essay that a lot of this is based on, she wrote, there are only two or three human stories, and they go on repeating themselves as fiercely as if they had never happened before. That is, when you look at, you wonder, well, why are all these movies the same? Now, sometimes they're just bad repeats of previous movies. Um, I mean, The Maltese Falcon, I've heard, uh, doesn't do justice to the novel, but what makes it a great movie with Humphrey Bogart is the actors, and the story is a little flawed, um, but sometimes we watch stories just because we enjoy the acting and, or the experience of it, but the story doesn't take a whole lot of thought. Uh, Godfather 1, there's, a, there's something to think about, about tragic flaws in people, on how this family is undone. That's why say the love of family is a beautiful thing, except, you know, in the mafia, that nearly every story we tell has some elements of innocence in it. And then that innocence is destroyed. In The Godfather, it's Michael Corleone. In uh, The Scarlet Letter, it's Pastor Dimsdale, who really wants to be a good minister. And Hester, um, who is just married badly, hung out to dry, and is just pushed beyond her ability to function on her own, and so she falls into an adulterous relationship. But all of this really is in some way telling the story of Adam and Eve. And so, The Scarlet Letter. Um, it begins with this woman, Hester Prine, who's been caught in adultery. How's she been caught? Because she has a baby, and her husband uh, is nowhere around, and so they know that she's cheated on him, and we'll learn later that Chillingsworth comes back to town to avenge this uh, smear, smear on his honor, but he never reveals who he is to anyone. Only Hester really knows who he is. But she stood up in front of the whole town. And we know that we have a history, and it goes back to England, of putting people in stocks, um, publish, uh, publicly punishing behavior, public hangings, that all of this is to deter the, the growth of the terries, of the weeds in our field of wheat. Um, but at the heart of it is the omnipresence in almost every aspect of human life uh, of the mystery of sin. Uh, sin is always taking some created thing and uh, living our life around it. It can be called in modern terms addiction. Uh, in ancient Israel, they call it idol worship. But it's taking sex, money, power, your car, uh, your family, in the case of the Godfather, anything good, 
and um, using it out of reason that somehow in the midst of all of humanity, um, there is this desire uh, to have, as St. Teresa of Avila said, to have the coins in my hand. And sin seems to offer that to us, but it's demonic, obviously. It, uh, it ends up destroying us. And so Hester has, survives her three hours getting stared at and maligned by everybody. And it, she goes out and she takes this simple little home out on the edge of the settlement where she's ignored, but she's a wonderful seamstress. People bring her sewing. She's able to make a living. Her little girl grows up, but she's like a forest sprite. There is just something different. And she seems to have an understanding of people and to pull out guilt out of people uh, that goes beyond her age. And meanwhile, Pastor Dimsdale uh, and Hester, uh, Dimsdale's kind to her, but just avoids her because he loses position in the community. Publicly, he's considered a wonderful preacher, the holiest man in Plymouth Colony. Um, and as he bears the burden of his private sin and uh, gets all this praise from people, which is just the mirror side of what uh, Hester is having handed to her, she's actually a noble character, but she's maligned and ignored by people. Um, she has the public guilt of the sin. Dimsdale bears the private guilt. And what you're asked as the story unfolds is to understand how unconfessed sin eats us up. This is what happens to Dimsdale, and it ends up destroying him in the end. But Hester, she seems to rise above it. Um, she is somebody who just has self-possession, and it really doesn't matter. Uh, how people treat her, because at some point uh, they kind of forget why she's wearing the scarlet letter. It, it just people just get used to it. She will never take it off. It's her. I think it's her token of love and commitment to the one man who cared about her, Pastor Dimsdale. Though it's this sinful relationship, at least in the past it was. Um, so there's one scene in the middle of the novel where Hester is out late at night with uh, Pearl, the little girl, and they're coming back from some, some errand of mercy in the middle of the night. And right in the middle of town where she had been publicly display, displayed, they run into Pastor Dimsdale who's coming back from uh, visiting a sick parishioner. And uh, little Pearl asks her to take her hand, uh, and he refuses. And it crushes him that he can't hold his own child's hand because there are people around and they might see. What finally ends the story is when at the end, Dimsdale, who is dying, publicly confesses his guilt, although nobody else would have guessed it, and then takes little Pearl's hand. And that seems to break the spell. Um, there's a happy ending to it uh, because it is not a, it's, there's a tragic flaw that runs through it. But the tragedy really isn't the two people. The tragedy is the community and its desire uh, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, to have a kind of a perfection that's just not available to us human beings. You know, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote this just before the American Civil War. It was the most popular book that he wrote. He wrote The House of Seven Gables and some, some other stories, his uh, short stories are absolutely tremendous. That's where he excels his short stories. But uh, 
You know, he wasn't a religious man. He was the child of Puritans, though. One of his, I think it was his great-grandfather, but it was a distant relative, like a couple generations back, had been a, um, uh, a judge during the Salem witch trials, uh, which would have been about a century and a half before uh, Hawthorne lived, so it's, I guess, more than his grandfather. Another distant relative was someone who had actually tried and put people into stocks. The names of those people were Haythorne, H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E. Um, Hawthorne changed the spelling of his name, added a W, so that he could distance himself from his family's reputation as one of these puritanical persecutors from the 17th century. He wasn't a particularly religious man, but if you read his novels and his short stories, he has a profound spiritual understanding of the world. He married one of the Peabody sisters, Elizabeth, I think it was, who was a, a New England transcendentalist. And when we think of transcendentalism, it seems like it's this huge thing for the 19th century, but really transcendentalism is what you and I would call the New Age. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, the Peabody sisters, Margaret Fuller, um, they were really the source of a New Age belief um, that, uh, that we have still here today. But if they could, the transcendentalists and the New Agers, could talk about the inherent goodness and the divinity in each human being, Hawthorne wasn't buying any of it. He saw the evil in every human being, the weed and the wheats growing up together in the human person. So here's something to think about. When you hear the story of the weed and the wheats, think about it in three ways. Where are the weeds in your life that are corrupting the good in your life? We can focus on the weeds in our community, and they're easy. They're usually on the front page of the paper for us, right? Um, but we can probably take a step forward in combating the evil in our life if we pray for other people who commit basically the sins we think about, the sins we talk about, or the sins that we do. Um, it's how it is that you deal with the growth of weeds in your own life. Um, T.S. Eliot, uh, writing about Charles Baudelaire, saw another poet I've talked about, who talks about evil in the world, and Baudelaire tries to find the beauty in it. And it's something like what Hawthorne, who is about the same time period as Baudelaire in the middle of the 19th century, uh, he wrote in his essay about Baudelaire, at least able to understand the sexual act as evil is more dignified, less boring, than is the natural, life-giving, cheery, automatism, automatic, uh, automatism of the modern world where we make our own laws. I'm stumbling over it, but it means we make up our own rules about sex. So far as we are human, what we do must either be evil or good. Um, everything has an evil or good quality to it because we're human. That's where our stories come from. When you remove any moral basis uh, out of novels or movies, there's really no tragedy or anything to talk about anymore. The worst can be said of most of the evildoers in our country, from statesmen to thieves, is they don't seem to have much of a sense of good or evil in them. Nathaniel Hawthorne did. And so, um, although his daughter became a Catholic, he had a profound understanding 
of the problem of evil in human lives. And for us to recognize it and to see that it even is in us, at least we see the reality the way that God sees reality. So anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this story about the Scarlet Letter and how it's about uh, the Plymouth Colony trying to stomp out evil in its world and doing more harm than good. It's a lesson from the 19th century that might as well be relevant in the 21st. And so, if you can read it, enjoy it. Uh, and until next week, this has been Father John.